0: The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. The war between Israel and Hamas is now in its second month, and the humanitarian situation in Gaza is deteriorating. As we're recording this, Israeli military vehicles have surrounded the Al Shifa Hospital in Gaza City where fuel, water, and medicine are running out for the people sheltering inside. But there are also growing fears of a wider regional conflict. Israel is trading fire with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, and the United States has carried out airstrikes on Iranian-linked facilities in Syria and Iraq. Joining me to discuss all this, and in particular Iran's interests and involvement, is Sir John Jenkins, the former British ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Libya, Iraq, Syria, and Burma, among his many diplomatic postings, and the author of a recent essay in The New Statesman titled The Iran Trap. So, John, thank you for joining me.
2: You're very welcome. Nice to be here.
0: Let's start with a sense of where we are now um, into this second month. How would you characterize the current status of this conflict, particularly in terms of its regional dimensions?
2: You know, the thing that strikes me about this and talking to quite a lot of senior Israelis recently is the way that they frame it. Um, and they will say it's a paradigm shift. Now, It's a paradigm shift in, in, in two ways, I think. One is that, uh, that the Israelis realise that the policy that they have pursued for the last decade, two decades, um, of seeking to, as they say, mow the grass in terms of conflict, not just you know, with Hamas, uh, but also with Hezbollah and others, uh, and in the meantime resist pressure for uh, a serious return to negotiations on a Palestinian state, uh, has essentially collapsed. They cannot now tolerate a uh, Gaza which is under Hamas control, uh, although it's not at all clear what they think is going to come afterwards. I mean, that is now becoming the centre of the sort of, of the international debate, and that also means that they will not be able to tolerate the sort of presence that Hezbollah have established over the last uh, twenty three years since Resolution seventeen o one in the north, uh, so in southern Lebanon. Now, seventeen o one was supposed to was supposed to ensure that 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 that, south, that bit of southern Lebanon from the border with Israel up to the Latani River was essentially demilitarized. There were no, there were no weapons at all. I mean, that's, that's, that's actually been a joke for at least 15 years. I remember being up there in, in 2008, 2009, talking to various people, including the command of the Lebanese army there, and I said to him, well, you know, it's quite clear that Hamas, uh, that Hezbollah uh, have got their people all over this place, and they've got weapons, they've got bunkers. This is against 1701. What do you do about it? He, and he just he got very cross. Because he couldn't answer. And I think that, that has now become a big issue. So the presence of Hezbollah on that border. Now, I think the Israelis are now entirely concentrating on Gaza. They're trying to remove Hamas from Gaza, whatever that means. There will be an issue about what happens afterwards. They're trying to keep the north quiet. The level of, 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 of attacks across that border from Hezbollah and the Israeli responses has ticked up noticeably in the last, uh, in the last week, two weeks. Now, my guess is, and if you listen, I mean, Nasrallah has now spoken twice uh, since the conflict uh, erupted. It looks to me as if Hezbollah are trying to do what Hezbollah have always tried to do, which is calibrate the level of, of their level of, of, of attack with an Israeli-level response, which stops short of an outright conflict. Because I think, I think the memory of 2006 and the massive destruction that has wreaked on Lebanon in 2006 is still very, very raw. Um, and you've seen uh, Ma'ati, the, the, the Lebanese um, uh, prime minister, saying uh, that uh, Lebanon needs to say out of conflict, this is a disastrous, blah 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 He also says he trusts Hezbollah's judgment, which, of course, he has to say. And that's an issue. It does, can Hezbollah calibrate this effectively? More widely, you're seeing Iraq or, or Iranian-inspired uh, groups attacking um, the U.S. in particular in Syria uh, and Iraq. The U.S. still have military presence in parts of Syria. Up in the north, the northeast, uh, and down on the border with, with Jordan, um, and a significant military presence up in the north of Iraq, and they're, they're being targeted. So there's a whole bunch of st- a lot of stuff that's going on, which looks to me quite unstable. Um, I don't think anybody really wants to have a, a major regional conflict, and I think it's, it's a lesson of the of the Riyadh summit um, recently, uh, when there's a lot of words and not much action. Um, but who knows? I mean, people miscalculate.
0: What does that calibration look like from the Iranian side? Um, is there also a sense of trying to manage this short of an all-out conflict?
2: Yeah, I think, I don't think, you know, the Iranians, I think, see this. I mean, the, the conflict, as I wrote in the essay, the conflict with with with, with Israel is uh, is a major preoccupation of the Iranian leadership. It uh, has been since the Iranian revolution, since 79, since uh, Khamenei came back. Uh, I think the Iranians see great virtue in strategic patience they think israel will eventually disappear because it is divinely it is divinely ordained uh, their duty is to help it along but not to provoke a sort of regional conflict particularly with two us uh, carrier groups uh, off the coast uh, of of lebanon and israel that would precipitate a, a major uh, us or indeed israeli or us israeli uh, attack on on key iranian assets either in iraq or syria or indeed in Iran itself. But again, you know, this is a question of judgment and, 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 and you know, if you look at the history of the, of the region over the last, over the last uh, few decades, uh, you know, people get things wrong quite a lot of the time.
0: If we take a step back and look at the key protagonists here, in particular, the link between Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah and the Shia militias in Iraq and Syria, yeah. what do we need to understand about their shared objectives here, particularly with how, how they view Israel?
2: The Iranians have developed, and developed from the early 1980s onwards, a, a method of forward defense. And this forward defense essentially meant that, they, that that if there was going to be a conflict with their enemies, either in, in the Gulf, the Americans, Israelis, or whoever, uh, it was going to be somewhere else. It wasn't going to be an Iranian soil. This is why they, they, they helped found uh, Hezbollah in the very early 1980s. Hezbollah emerged out of other Shia groups, uh, particularly Amal, which still exists. The Speaker of the Lebanese Parliament, Nabi Beri, is, is the leader of Amal, but that sort of collapsed into Hezbollah And Hezbollah were then the recipient of training from the Revolutionary Guards, uh, massive um, uh, equipment transfers, uh, and a lot of money. And that's continued over the last, over the last 40 years. This is the same model uh, that they have deployed in Iraq, helped, of course, by the 2003 invasion, the destruction of the Saddamist regime, which removed any controls on Iranian activity in, uh, inside Iraq, uh, in Syria, and now in Yemen. Now, th- these groups are not all the same. Uh, Hezbollah has a particular trajectory, and because it was set up by the Revolutionary Guards, and because historically there was all of the connection between Lebanese Shia and Iran, uh, going back to the to the, to the 17th century, uh, that's all has been very, very close. Um, the Iraqi militias, there are various Iraqi militias. Some are closer to the line, what, what's called the line of the imam. Uh, than others, uh, and some uh, less inclined to take direct Iranian instructions. The Sadrist, for example, the Sadrists are a militant millenarian group, but they're they're more Iraqi nationalists than they are uh, aligned with Iran. Uh, and then the Houthis, and the Houthis represent a different strand of Shiism, um, but they have developed over the last twenty years very close links with Tehran and with the IRGC. So there's there are different sorts of, of of expressions of this fundamental DNA, but essentially it is. It is a way not just of, of, of making sure that any conflict happens somewhere else, in Iraq, and Syria, in Lebanon, or, or, or in Yemen, uh, but also gives uh, the Iranians a way of projecting force more widely into the region, not just in these countries, but into Saudi Arabia. We saw with the attacks in, 19, in 2019 on the oil installations at Abqaiq and al-Kharais. This happening, we've seen it with Houthi attacks on, 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 uh, on airports in, in the UAE. We've seen it recently with attempts by the Houthis to launch missiles to hit Elat uh, in Israel and so forth. And as I said in the article, I mean, we we, we have seen the transfer of sophisticated uh, missile technology, particularly guidance systems, to all these militias, which enables them to hit a variety of targets at very long distance across the region. So this is not simply defensive, it's also offensive.
0: And you write that the only difference now is likely to be in terms of tactics, that these groups are all ultimately committed to the destruction of Israel. I mean, What does that look like in terms of disagreements that we might see playing out or tensions over what happens next with the current conflict?
2: Yeah, some of this is informed by domestic politics. If you look at the way that the, the Iraqi militias, for example, um, are talking about, about all of this, and they're, they're, they're very, very punchy, people like uh, Qais al-Khazali and, and, and others. And a lot of that is to do with the way in which they want to keep pressure on, on the Iraqi government to deliver what they want inside Iraq. So some of this is, 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 is shaped by the pressures of domestic politics. The Houthis too. I mean, one of the reasons the Houthis are doing what they're doing is A, because they want to be useful to Iran, there's doubtless uh, communication between them and the IOGC, but also because it actually helps them inside Yemen because hostility to Israel is, is very widespread in the Assyrians of many uh, Middle Eastern uh, countries. So it looks as if they are pursuing a national project at a time when they are pursuing a sectional agenda inside Iran. So there's a whole bunch of, of different stuff going on. But by and large, I mean, you know, the, the, the great Houthi battle cry is death to America and death to the United States, you know, the, 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 which is essentially the same cry as you hear in, in, in Iran, have heard in Iran since the 1979 revolution. You will hear it again in, in, uh, in Iraq. And this issue of Israel is, 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 a, is a very powerful mobilizing issue because... For genuine reasons, a lot of these, 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 these groups think that uh, the destruction of Israel uh, is necessary to, 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 uh, to facilitate the return of the, of the, of the hidden imam, of the, of the, of the imam in, in occultation. Shi'ism has this belief in the return of, of the 12th imam who went into occultation sometime in the 9th in the, in the century and will come back to the end of time as a Mahdi. And, and destruction of Israel, destruction of the Jews, etc. All these sort of millenarian things. We also saw the Islamic State in a Sunni context. Um, are present. And I remember in Iraq, uh, in, uh, it must have been 2009, 2010, I think, speaking to a former Iraqi national security advisor. We were talking about Ahmadinejad, actually. And Ahmadinejad, who would been the president of Iran, famously left a seat at the cabinet table vacant just in case the imam turned up for a cabinet meeting. And I laughed at this. And uh, the person I was talking to, the former national security advisor, said, why are you laughing? You Do you not believe that the, uh, that the imam will return? I said, well, it's not that I don't believe that the imam will return. I mean, I'm Catholic after all, so I, I, I believe in the end of time as well. I just don't think he's going to turn up for his cabinet meeting. But I mean, it, this is—you know—this is. It's there. It's present as, as, as a factor, uh, and it has a symbolic importance uh, for these groups uh, that is quite hard to understand. I think for in, in the in the West, where where the sort of the, the symbolic sphere in which we operate is, is is so different. It's so secularized.
0: Does that also play into how we have assessed? Iran as sort of the, as the collective West, as you, as you write in your essay, seems to have been a shift from the sort of earliest vision of a, an expansionist revolutionary regime to something that was seen as more pragmatic, recognizing the limits of what could be achieved, perhaps its own regional limitations. What have we missed or perhaps failed to understand about the, idol- about the ideology driving the regime?
2: Well, I talk about secular rationality and the way in which we apply secular rationality. And I think of Kant's famous essay on a sketch for, for, for an everlasting peace. Um, and I know Kant is not that popular these days. But I mean, Kant is is, is, is iconic in terms of, of, of enlightenment rationality. And that sense that if, if people are just rational enough, uh, they can achieve peace, they can achieve negotiations, they can, they can achieve any settlement of any sort of issues it is, is is deeply embedded, I think, in the way the Western policymakers uh, think of the world. I mean, it's one of the reasons I think. I mean, Jake Sullivan famously, you know, a, a couple of weeks before all this kicked off, was saying that he hadn't seen the the, 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 the Middle East so quiet for for for, 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 for decades, and this is very good for him because he could concentrate on other stuff. Well, actually, you know, the frozen conflicts—if we thought of frozen—actually weren't frozen at all, and they weren't frozen because conflicts are never frozen really in the Middle East. they are always they've always there. Partly because of material differences in the way that people pursue uh, different interests in, 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 in the region, but also because through through the region there are these fault lines of interpretation. Um, uh, we classify them as sectarianism, and this isn't some sort of crass point about you know age old sectarianisms. I mean, these sectarianisms take a take a very modern form, and they and they've been they are shaped in a very modern form by modern ideologies. And as I write in the essay, I mean, if you look at Islamisms, Islamisms in the 20th and 21st century have been heavily shaped by the way that Western, uh, by, by, by certain forms of quasi-metaphysical Western thought as well, including existentialism I and mean, Heidegger is, 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 is central to the way that, 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 that Iranian revolution is construed the revolution, but also in terms of, of, of action. And it's, it's, this, it's, it's this idea that the, 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 the you need to understand the symbolic world in which these, 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 these actors move and act. Uh, in the Middle East, and they are different. So when they say we believe the Imam will return, we, uh, this is, is absolutely essential. You know, Khomeini comes back in January 1979, and he, he promulgates this heterodox uh, doctrine of Walayat al-Faqih, which is the, the custodianship of the, the jurisprudence, which is which is heterodox in sheer terms. I mean, it's not it's not specifically owned by Khomeini. You can find this going back to the early nineteenth century, but it's essentially saying that I, Ayatollah Khomeini, because of my learning and because of my piety. I'm, I'm uniquely equipped to interpret the will of the hidden Imam. Now, historically, uh, in, in, in Shia communities, um, governments were never Islamically legitimate because you didn't have the Imam. And Khomeini is saying this is this is legitimate because I do I have a direct line. He'd also sit in his garden under the mulberry tree, communing with God. I mean, this is, and I think we've lost. We, we tend to think that this is slightly comic. Or not serious, or masks other things. Actually, I don't think it masks other things. I mean, it's a bit like you know, understanding the European seventeenth century. Why did the Anabaptists of Munster take over Munster? They didn't do it because they wanted you know to take over Munster. Well, they didn't want to take over Munster, but it was because they thought that oh, this was that this was divinely ordained. It was it was a, a pursuit of an apocalyptic vision of the world and so forth. And I just think we've lost the ability to interpret the religious mindset when it is applied to politics. You know, Tony Blair saying famously, we don't do God. Well, actually, in the Middle East, they do do God. And I think, you know, bridging that gap is really important.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
0: dimension of this conflict, and I mean the sort of broader overarching conflict here in this sense. Again, as you, you outline, you talk about the trap that Iran ha- has set here. Mm. What is the end goal in terms of tying down Israel and the United States in terms of weakening their interests? What's, what's the long-term strategy?
2: I mean, the Iranians want the United States out of the Middle East. North Africa. I mean, they've made that clear. They've said it. Uh, and their proxies their have said it. And they want them out of the Middle East because they think that this is an impediment to the assertion by Iran of a secular hegemony over the Middle East. Um, but also, it's, a, it's an obstacle to Iran exercising uh, for and legitimate leadership over the Muslims of the world. I mean, if you look at the... I mean, it's an interesting episode in 1979, 1980, when, when, uh, when certain politicians are telling Khomeini we need a constitution. Well, Khamenei doesn't believe in constitution, but he lets them write a constitution and then ignores it because he he basically says, I, I, I take the final decision on everything. But one of the things in the constitution is it says, this is a revolution and we need to export it to the world. Now, some of this is taken from Fanon. Um, Ali Shariati, uh, famously, who was one of the great influences on on on, uh, on, on the Iranian revolution... Who died actually in Portsmouth in in, in the mid seventies? Had translated Fanon into uh, into Persian, and this this idea that there is that, that uh, Iran also is the leader not just of an, of an Islamic revolution, a Shia revolution, but and, and claims leadership of, of not just Shia but is, but Muslims. They also claim leadership of the wretched of the earth. I mean, the the, 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 the word they use in, in in Persian, which is an Arabic word Musta'rifin or or al Ard, Mahramin al Ard, is, is the exact translation of le de la terre, and that's. So it's this, it's this curious mixture. But behind it is the sense that Iran has, by its nature as a state, by its geographical position, by its demographic weight, but also by the fact that it is the major uh, Shia power, perhaps the only state which is which is a, a full state, which is uh, which is a Shia state, that it has ownership of this issue of the Shia communities around the world. This is a version of the claims by the Islamic State to, to, to own uh, all Sunni communities around the world, the Ummah. And uh, that, I think, is is what the desired final destination of Iran as a state will be for Ayatollah Khamenei as it was for Khomeini. There are obstacles to this, of course. I mean, severe obstacles. It's not going to happen. It doesn't mean they don't believe it. And, and one of the obstacles to this is is the United States in the region and the other is Israel. Israel is, they think, doesn't belong in the region. It's an alien insert. It's a, it's a, it's a bunch of, you know, Western uh, settler uh, colonialists and, and the rest of it, and will be expelled like, like the Crusaders. Again, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but the problem is, how do you negotiate with a state which believes that this is divinely ordained. This will inevitably happen. It just needs to be helped on its way, which raises questions about the whole issue of the nuclear file, the nuclear deal, of, of what happens after that, of, of, of new negotiations uh, for a nuclear deal and so forth.
0: What does that mean to drill down into that in a little more depth for Israel when on the opposite side of this nominal negotiating table is a, a state and a regime that believes it should not exist and has a belief structure that believes that that is inevitably going to going to come become the case. I think you you put it in terms of how do you solve an essentially political problem when the other side doesn't believe in political solutions?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you listen to the uh, Hamdan, the the, the senior uh, Hamas politician, remember then the notorious interview with Lebanese TV, and he's saying we'll, we'll continue doing this because Israel can't exist, shouldn't exist, won't exist, and you know this is. So this, this sort of teleological uh, millenarian sort of mindset is, is 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 very common. Now Hamas will say, and an apologists for Hamas will say, well, they, you know, they've offered truces. Well, yeah, they've offered, tru- they offered truces, they have offered truces. They offered ten-year truces uh, and so forth, which has a model in in, in Islamic history, the, treat- the, 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 the so-called Treaty of Hudaybiyyah with with the inhabitants of Mecca, which the, which the Prophet Muhammad uh, signed. And then denounced three years later, <clears throat> but that only buys a, a certain amount of time. And you know, I think the Israelis, though, I think the, I think there was a sort of mismatch with Israel because the Israelis, I mean, Ben Gurion's great um, mantra was one day at a time. So for Israel it was all let's 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 make an advance here and then see where we are tomorrow. Um, and I think you see a bit of that at the moment with Gaza. But for Hamas, you know, they're looking at the long durée, and, and they're thinking the long durée we're going to win. So anything between now and then, we can make tactical withdrawals, tactical concessions, but they're only tactical. In the end, uh, there is only one solution to this, which is the destruction of Israel. And I think that's also the case for, uh, for, for Iran. Now, you might argue, well, you can try and work that through, make tactical concessions buy some time, and then people will change. Iran hasn't really changed. It's not that there haven't been Iranian pragmatists. There have. Rafsanjani. Uh, was was the most uh, prominent of them when he was uh, when he was president, and I, when I used to go and see the king and Saudi King Abdullah, the late King uh, Abdullah and Saudi Arabia, he would say, you know, I missed my friend Asinjani because he thought you could do a deal with Asinjani. Asinjani was a believer in the revolution, but he was also a business a, a business person, uh, extremely rich. Uh, he was comfortable in the world, dealing with other actors who weren't necessarily uh, um, who didn't believe in the same things that he did, and there were probably things you could have done. But I mean, I think that tendency was was destroyed sometime between 97, which is the election of uh, Khatami in Iran, when there's quite a lot of evidence that significant numbers of the Revolutionary Guards voted for Khatami, uh, and the arrival of uh, uh, Ahmadinejad uh, in 2000, whenever it was, 2005. Um, and what you saw was, was a reaction by the regime, by the, by the deep state in, in, in Iran uh, under Khamenei, which saw what had happened in the 97 election, was determined to avoid a repeat, and then instituted a program of winnowing out those in the Revolutionary Guard they didn't think were committed enough and, p- and producing a very sophisticated and elaborate program of indoctrination, which ensured that anybody who did join the Revolutionary Guard believed in the return of the Imam and the basic uh, underlying tenets of the Iranian Revolution. And I think it's been one of, the, one, of the, one of the things. And also, Khamenei then, 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 then basically sponsors a, a melding. Of the clerical and military parts of the regime, which produce this Praetorian state, uh, which is 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 designed to coup-proof the regime. It's a vanguardist regime, uh, and very successfully uh, uh, so far. And you know, I, I think it's personally, I think it's folly to think that this is going to change because it hasn't really. And every, every time it looks as if something will change, the regime reacts. I mean, you know, your opponents always get a vote in in, in, in all of this, and that applies to to internal uh, uh, conflicts demonstrations, uprisings, as much as it does to external conflicts and wars.
0: Final question, As I, I know we've, we've taken up a lot of your time already, and I know we're running a little short on time, but you have covered this, this region and these specific crises in depth for a number of years now. How do you view this current moment? What would you say is the significance of, of what we're seeing unfolding now?
2: I think it goes along with the other things we've seen in the Gulf, particularly in Saudi Arabia. Now, you know, people have different views about Mohammed bin Salman. And, you know, he's Jamal uh, Khashoggi was a friend of mine. Uh, what happened to him was absolutely unconscionable. It was brutal. It was criminal. Um, uh, and it was never satisfactorily resolved. But the reforms that are happening in Saudi Arabia, the social reforms in particular, are, are important and, uh, and widely popular. And Saudi Arabia is not just Mohammed bin Salman. It, it, it's, it's 20 million Saudis. And this is really important because Saudi Arabia was actually one of the central promoters of a particular form of austere Wahhabi Salafism um, from the late 1950s onwards, which in the end led to, led to things like the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, uh, and all these other groups uh, in a complicated sort of way. I think the Saudis woke up to the dangers of this in the late 1990s and then you know decided they needed to do something about it and combat it. And what we're seeing now with, 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 the, with the new Saudi Arabia is a decision to try and join the rest of the world, a sort of globalized, economic, technologically advanced. Um, and that is, is an important moment in itself. I think this in Gaza, so I think that in itself is a change. This in Gaza is another sort of change in the other direction because it has destroyed the assumptions of the last 20 years. It was interesting, this whole question of normalization between Saudi Arabia and, and, and Israel, because the Israelis are as much keener on this than the Saudis were. And every time Netanyahu looked eager, then Mohammed bin Salman put the price up. I think the price now, I think the Saudis are still interested in this, not necessarily because they love Israel, but because they see something that that, that helps reduce the level of conflict in the region as important for their own social and economic ambitions. So I think the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Bahrainis and everybody else in the the Gulf and, and elsewhere wants there to be a settlement of this. But I think the price now, whereas before this conflict, the price may have been something less than a Palestinian state, I think the price for that now, for normalization, is a Palestinian state. And in the end, that is the answer to, to this. I mean, it's not the answer to everything. It's not the answer to Iran. It's not the answer to Hezbollah and the rest of it. But it's the answer to a lot of the other sort of conflicts. And it removes one of the major causes of, of an ease, anger, unrest, uh, and so forth in the Arab Middle East and the Muslim world more generally. It is, it is not that, you know, Egypt or Jordan are going to denounce their treaties with, with, with Israel. They've they got too much invested in it. But this what the, the Palestinian issue does, it has the ability to stop other things happening. And I think that's something that the Saudis have come to understand very clearly. So it is important what happens on the day after this conflict ends, what sort of arrangements are in place for Gaza, and what sort of political arrangements are in place for the Palestinians more generally, because they're not going anywhere, they really aren't. I mean, they, 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 uh, Ben Gavir and, and Smotrich may may want to to force them out of the West Bank and Gaza, but I just don't think. I mean, it's it's, it's not going to happen to be immoral, but it's not. It's also an, not practical politics. You've got to have a plan to deal with this. Now you need a different sort of Israeli government. How long it's going to take? I don't know. And it's you know I, I think you know Israel is not the only country where where there's a lack of of of, um, of, of um, of interesting, competent, and aspiring leadership, political leadership. <clears throat> but uh, and, and if it's important for the Middle East, it's going to be important for the United States as well. So I think it's really interesting this whole, you know, when Biden or indeed Obama says we need to pivot to, to the Asia-Pacific and we're going to leave the Middle East behind. Well, you know, as it was Lenin, I think, who said that the power of the Middle East, you might not be interested in the Middle East, but the Middle East is interested in you. And I think that's, I, 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 that's a cliche, but there's quite a lot of truth in it.
0: Oh, absolutely. no, that that rings extraordinarily true in this cur- in these current times, the um perennial desire for every u s. administration to shift its focus um and realign from from the Middle East uh, towards the the famous and apparently never coming pivot to Asia um, on that note, let me say so, John Jenkins, thank you very much. and thank you so much for listening. Follow the New Statesman podcast on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel and perhaps catch a glimpse of Sir John's cat. Um, Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. You have been listening to The New Statesman podcast with me, Katie Stallard, and my guest, Sir John Jenkins. This episode was produced by Chris Stone.